Brought to you by Feitner Productions. Welcome to a very special episode of Laying Down the Law. This is a crossover episode with my friend, M. Persico. They have a podcast called Artists with M, and they are gender non-conforming, non-binary. They invited me to be on their podcast, and I said, well, why don't you be on mine? So M was kind enough to allow me to share their podcast stream with mine. Wanted to release this episode on a day that would be significant and important um, to raise awareness. And so we're releasing this podcast episode on May 17th. May 17th is the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia, um, which was created in 2004 to draw attention to violence and discrimination experienced by lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex people, and all other people with diverse sexual orientations, gender identities or expressions, and sex characteristics. Um, The reason May 17th was chosen was because that is the day the World Health Organization decided in 1990 to declassify homosexuality as a mental disorder. So this day is a major global annual landmark to draw attention of decision makers, the media, the public, corporations, opinion leaders, local authorities, etc., to the uh, hostility and the difficulties faced by people who have diverse sexual orientations, gender identities or expressions, and sex characteristics. Um, so I am very honored um, that M was willing to share their experience on my podcast. Uh, if you listen, you'll hear that I um, at times feel uncomfortable or I say things that are a little awkward. And one of the things that we can do if uh, we're not um, someone who identifies in a diverse way around gender or sexuality is be welcoming. And uh, M was very gracious in sharing their experience with me and educating me. So please, this is an interesting listen. I can't promise any improv or a lot of comedy in this one, but I think you'll get a great experience and a little bit about the law. Thanks very much and enjoy. Beyond Unreasonable Doubt and Verboten Productions proudly present Laying Down the Law with your host, Billy D. Clark. That's me. Welcome to Laying Down the Law, the law and comedy podcast that's a real green jello salad. We take nutty improv comedy, we mix it with the lactose heavy cream cheese of real legal cases and the lighter whipped cream of my opinions on the law, and then we set it in the lime jello of real human connection. The goal is to make a real feast for your ears or uh, for your Thanksgiving table that will leave you indisposed for weeks. Today's a very special episode, and before we begin today's legal thrill ride, I'd like to introduce you to my guest. They are a clown, podcaster and musician, singer-songwriter, an indie folk performer in Los Angeles, California. They have a degree in cinema from San Francisco State, and we met in musical improv at the Second City in Hollywood. They recently featured my spouse, Dr. Nicole Tatro, author of Insight into a Bright Mind, on their podcast, Artists with M. They are M. Persico. Yay. <laughs> Welcome, M. Hello. You didn't know about my corny movie trailer intro. Oh, my gosh. It was very exciting. I That's could hardly contain myself. Yeah, oh they my don't gosh. do that so much anymore, but uh, I think it's a shame. 
I like I just, it. It I is a it. shame. It in is. a world. <laughs> in a world. Here, you do it now. In a world. It's so, it's like, my speaking voice is way higher than the, in a world, you know? So the, uh, ah, just Yeah, so maybe we have to change people's <laughs> expectations. We can in say, a world. oh, that sounds good. In a world. One, per, one, one podcaster. One. Another podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, I'm going to jump right into it this week. We're going to, we're not doing improv this week. We're going to just focus on the law because these are really two great cases that I want to uh, get into with you. Um, when you had me on your podcast that we recorded last time, I mm -hmm. said, um, and ah, and fumbled around for a while. So I'm fresher. I'm it's more okay. caffeinated and hopefully I can do a better Yay. job this time. Okay. Uh, so the first case I want to talk about today, um, when I asked you, what are you interested in? You said, I'm interested in marital equality. And so the key case in that area is a Supreme Court case from 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges. And in Obergefell v. Hodges, the United States Supreme Court was asked to decide whether the United States Constitution creates a right to marry whomever you choose. Right. There were groups of same-sex couples who sued their state agencies, the appropriate state agencies in the states of Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee to challenge the constitutionality of the state's bans on same-sex marriage or a refusal to recognize same-sex marriages that had occurred in other states that allowed such marriages. So, for example, in California, um, same-sex marriage has been legal um, for kind of a while, uh, there was a whole battle over Proposition 8 in the state courts, and uh, ultimately the law changed, the Constitution changed, and it changed back. And so the plaintiffs argued that the statutes, which essentially all said the same thing, the language that was used is we say that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that was the language that they used in order to discriminate um, based on uh, gender or gender identity or sex. And I understand that those are different things, different concepts. Uh, but the law treats uh, gender and sex in, in an interesting way. So the plaintiffs argued those statutes violated the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause of the United States Constitution's 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment was enacted uh, just after the Civil War. Most of the constitutional law that has expanded civil rights has looked at the 14th Amendment because it, the 14th Amendment says that there shall be no law which treats different people differently. That's equal protection. All people are entitled to equal protection under the law. And the due process clause says that all people are entitled to due process or a fair process under the law. And so those are two different clauses that uh, People who want to expand individual rights, individual liberty, freedom, look to as a basis for saying this particular law treats people differently, it discriminates. So if it discriminates, it's treating two people, two groups of people differently. And then there was also claims brought under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In all of the cases, the trial court found in their favor, the Court of Appeal reversed and said that the bans on same-sex marriage and the refusal to recognize these marriages did not violate the couple's 14th Amendment rights to equal protection and due process. And so there are two questions presented by the case. The first question is, 
does the United States Constitution require every state to license a marriage? Again, we're not talking about religious marriage uh, that, that could be you know, performed by a minister, but the legal document marriage. And I think it's really important that people distinguish those two ideas in their mind. Uh, it's really not a religious case. It's a case about uh, the legal rights that go along with marriage between two people of the same sex. So, so can a state create a law that says, uh, we are going to say that we're only going to give marriage licenses when one person is a man and the other person is a woman, or one person is a woman and the other person is a man. The second question is, because the states were at that time uh, had different laws. So some states it was legal for uh, people of the same sex to be married. And in other states, it was not legal. When you move from one state to another, uh, there's a question as to whether your, your marriage that was legal in, in one state, uh, say California, would be legal in the state you moved to, say Ohio. Does the 14th Amendment require a state to recognize marriage between those two people when it was legally licensed in one state and, and not in the other? So under US law, you know, we have sort of different layers of laws. You have the federal law and you have each state having different laws. And so there are issues with conflicts of law and those typically go to the United States courts to figure out. Um, and so this was a, a very big win for um, people who support um, LGBTQ plus rights because it was a surprise ruling. Um, in that it was a five to four decision and Justice Anthony Kennedy, who at that time was the, the swing vote on the court, uh, he uh, wrote the opinion of the court and he ruled in the favor of the plaintiffs. Now, I wanna read a part of this opinion because I just thought it was beautifully written and I, I am getting away from reading whole court opinions, but I think this one is, is really beautiful. But before I uh, do anything, I've been talking for a while, uh, did you have thoughts about uh, what I was telling you or questions about what uh, and what I went over so far? I saw you were taking yes. notes, Em. Yes. You had two questions. One of them, I got the full question out, like, will the states uh, recognize the marriage if the person moved from the other state? What was the other question you had? Does the U.S. Constitution require each state something? Right. So so if uh, one of the states makes a law that says or or rights in their constitution, their state constitution, that a marriage is between one man and one woman, is that allowed? So oh, can you have a law? And what the Supreme Court does is it will strike down a law if it's unconstitutional. The Supreme Court of the Supreme Law of the land being the United States Constitution. So if something violates the US Constitution, the state law is invalidated. So it's like it's never been written and it's it doesn't it's not allowed to be enforced. It's taken off the books. And so these states had laws at that time that said you cannot issue a marriage license to two people of the same sex. And so that was the question is, is, is a law that says that legal? And so the, the answer to both questions is no, it's not legal to restrict people's right to marry based upon sex. And no, it's not legal to restrict the recognition of marriages that happened elsewhere. So if, it, if you're married in California, Massachusetts, and you move to Kentucky, um, your marriage is as valid in Kentucky as it is in 
California or Massachusetts. Cool. Okay. Um, but now everywhere in the United States, if you go to get married and you ask for a license to be married, they are not to ask you your sex. Mm -hmm. It's not relevant to getting That's a marriage cool. license. Yeah. Um, yeah. Question, comments, thoughts. Mm. It just makes me think like that's exciting to hear if I ever um, officially changed my uh, gender marker to X to non-binary on my legal documents that they won't be able to ask me if I ever wanted to marry someone like, oh, well, what's your gender if you're trying to marry this person or that person? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, OK, it doesn't matter. Right. It's they they can't uh, they can't discriminate on that basis. That's cool because yeah. there's lots of things people can discriminate on. And it's nice that that's not going to be a problem. That's not going to be one of them. Right. And if it is, then you're going to need to call a lawyer. <laughs> and yeah, we'll, call we'll, your friend, Billy. And we'll take him to court <laughs> and find their friends that's of right. lawyer friends. We'll take him to court. Um, cool. The second case that we're going to talk about has to do with uh, transgender persons' rights and employment. Um, oh. And in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, uh, the, the United States Supreme Court, uh, in a six to three decision, which was actually written by a conservative Justice Gorsuch, uh, that case um, held that uh, employers cannot discriminate against trans people. Oh. Is that in the whole United States or the whole specific? United States? Ooh. So uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act pr protects gay, lesbian and transgender employees from discrimination based on sex. Kind of a surprise case as well, uh, because Gorsuch is is not a liberal justice. He's very conservative. He was appointed by the previous president and it was joined by Roberts, who was appointed by Bush and then four liberal justices. So it's a very, it's actually a, a pretty important uh, majority case. And the fact that it's a six to three vote suggests that it, even though the court's makeup has shifted a little bit to the right um, with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, bless her, having mm -hmm. passed and with the new justice uh, whose name won't be mentioned. Mm -hmm. it, even though that shifts the makeup a little bit, it doesn't shift it enough that they would go back and reverse this. Also, the court tends to respect prior decisions. They don't, they don't reverse themselves very often. Once they've said something about on a topic that the idea is stare decisis, which means the decision stands. Right. That can be good or bad, depending on what they decide. Yes. And the, and the Supreme Court has changed its holding on some things. Currently, the conservatives have their eyes on Roe versus Wade with the current makeup of the court to try and erode or reverse that holding. So it can be eroded over time. It's constitutional law jurisprudence works as, you know, there can be little changes to the law, but the central ruling of the of the case would would stay the same. I know Roe versus Wade is like a big one that everyone should know, but it escapes me at the moment. Which one was that? Okay. Roe versus Wade says that the United States Constitution contains a right to a, a liberty right to privacy, to individual liberty, control over your own body. It's not explicitly in the Constitution, which is the basis on which conservatives attach it. Oh. 
So this is the one related to birth control? To abortion, yes. A woman's right to choose. And what the central holding in Roe versus Wade is that there cannot be a law that places an undue burden on a woman's right to choose. Or person, because some people can have babies with uteruses that don't identify as women now. That is a fantastic point. Thank you for pointing that out. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. Because I am non-binary, but I don't identify as a per as a woman, but I have yeah, the same. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what it's kind of an interesting area to think about how the law um, might try to catch up in that sense, um, because the um, the treatment of sex and gender as it's evolving kind of and, and as understandings are, are becoming are changing and evolving. Um, the laws and you'll see this in the in the Gorsuch opinion that I will visit in a second, but the laws treatment of sex as opposed to gender um, is kind of interesting. So it's mm -hmm. a, so it, it's a little different, um, and I think that's a question that that would be it'd be interesting to see how the court would handle that question if if someone was a trans uh, um, person that was physically able to um, mm -hmm. carry a child. How yeah. would really? They... It's just language. They're just it's all about like what language you use. Mm -hmm. And some people are saying or might think, oh, you're just being a, a, like a sensitive snowflake for wanting the language to be uh, like accepting or accurate according to our like how we like to be referred as. But if if language is what protects you, that's all we really have. Right. Well, yeah. And law is just really words. Yeah, it's just it is just language. So it, it can be language that has a big effect on people, but it never stops being amazing to me that the power of the law is in words. Um, with that, I want to read this just really interesting uh, writing. And, and just so you know, typically the Supreme Court justices, they write their opinions, but they're often written by their staff. They have right. what are called law clerks and they do a lot of the writing. So um, the person who wrote this clearly uh, is a very gifted writer. It says, from the beginning to their most recent page, the annals of human history reveal the transcendent importance of marriage. The lifelong union of a man and a woman has always promised nobility and dignity to all persons without regard to their station in life. Marriage is sacred to those who live by their religions and offers unique fulfillment to those who find meaning in the secular realm. Its dynamic allows two people to find a life that could not be found alone, for a marriage becomes greater than just two persons. Rising from the most basic human needs, marriage is essential to our most profound hopes and aspirations. The centrality of marriage to the human condition makes it unsurprising that the institution has existed for millennia and across civilizations. Since the dawn of history, Marriage has transformed strangers into relatives, binding families and societies together. Confucius taught that marriage lies at the foundation of government. The wisdom was echoed centuries later and a half a world away by Cicero, who wrote, the first bond of society is marriage, next children and then the family. There are untold references to the beauty of marriage in religious and philosophical texts, spanning time, cultures, and faiths, as well as in art and literature in all their forms. It is fair and necessary to say that these references were based on the understanding 
that marriage is a union between two persons of the opposite sex. That history is the beginning of these cases. The respondents say it should be the end as well. To them, these are the respondents are the people who are opposing the changes in the law. These are the people that want marriage to be between one man and one woman. So they say, and, and they, I think the justice here is going out of his way to be respectful to both sides' opinions and views and deeply held belief, because it is very religious and sacred to some people. And of course, the law protects religion in some ways, but it, it also, the free exercise of religion, which is protected by the First Amendment, um, has to interplay with the equal protection of the law in the 14th Amendment. So those different, those different ideas are intention, and they're kind of rubbing up against each other here. To, to the respondents, the people who oppose marriage equality, it would demean a timeless institution if the concept and lawful status of marriage were extended to two persons of the same sex. Marriage, in their opinion, is by its nature a gender-differentiated union of man and woman. This view has long been held and continues to be held in good faith by reasonable and sincere people here and throughout the world. The petitioners, these are the, the plaintiffs, the people who are challenging the law, acknowledge this history, but they contend that these cases cannot end there. Were their intent to demean the Revere idea and reality of marriage, the petitioner claims would be of a different order. A different, that would be a different thing, right? But that is neither the purpose nor their submission. To the contrary, it is the enduring importance of marriage. Uh, this kind of makes me emotional, actually. It is the enduring importance of marriage that underlies the petitioner's contentions. This, they say, is their whole point. Far from seeking to devalue marriage, the petitioners seek it for themselves because of their respect and need for its privileges and responsibilities. And their immutable nature dictates that same-sex marriage is their only real path to this profound commitment. I love this beautiful language that talks about the beauty of marriage between people who are of the same sex, who love each other, who want to be a part of it. And it's just that it's a love and respect for marriage. And it's not, it's not animosity to marriage. It's more, I want to participate in this and I don't mm -hmm. want to be excluded from this beautiful thing um, that it just, it uh, really yeah. affects me. Me too. I like it. So this story, the, 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 I think it's, it's interesting to find out who the people are that are involved. Um, so James Obergefell, a plaintiff in the Ohio case, met John Arthur over two decades ago. They fell in love and started a life together, establishing a lasted, committing relationship. In 2011, Arthur was diagnosed with ALS. Uh, ALS is progressive and there's no cure. So two years ago, Obergefell and Arthur decided to commit to one another, resolving to marry before Arthur died. To fulfill this promise, they went from Ohio to Maryland, where same-sex marriage was legal. It was very difficult for Arthur to move, so they were wed inside of a medical transport plane as it remained on the tarmac in Baltimore. And three months later, Arthur died. <clears throat> Ohio law does not permit Obergefell to be listed as the surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. So by law, they're strangers even in death a state-imposed separation that Obergefell deems hurtful for the rest of time. 
he brought suit because he wanted to be named as a surviving spouse on Arthur's death certificate. April DeBear and Jane Rouse are co-plaintiffs in a case from Michigan. They celebrated a commitment ceremony to honor their permanent relation in 2007. They're both nurses, DeBear in a neonatal unit and Rouse in an emergency unit. In 2009, DeBear and Rouse fostered and adopted a baby boy. Later that same year, they welcomed another son to their family. The new baby was premature and was abandoned by his biological mother, who required around-the-clock care. The next year, a third child, a baby girl with special needs, joined their family. Michigan only allows opposite-sex married couples or single people to adopt, so each child can only have one woman as his or her legal parent. If an emergency were to, I guess it should say his, her, or their legal parent, but. Woohoo. <laughs> nice. But, yeah. If an emergency were to arise, schools and hospitals may treat the three children as if they had only one parent. And if a tragedy were to, to fall, either April or Jane, the other would have no legal rights over the children that she had not been permitted to adopt. So they asked, they asked the court to relieve them from this legal uncertainty. Army Reserve Sergeant First Class Ej Pei Decoe and his partner Thomas Costura, plaintiffs in the Tennessee case, fell in love. In 2011, Decoe received orders to deploy to Afghanistan. Before leaving, he and Costura married in New York. A week later, Decoe began his deployment, which lasted almost a year. When he when they, he returned, they settled in Tennessee, where Decoe works full-time for the Army Reserve. Their lawful marriage is stripped from them whenever they reside in Tennessee, returning and disappearing as they travel across state lines. Decoe, who served this nation to preserve the freedom of the Constitution protects, must endure a substantial burden. The cases now before the court involve other petitioners as well, each with their own experiences. Their stories reveal that they seek not to denigrate marriage, but rather to live their lives or honor their spouse's memory joined by its bond. I came across that preparing and I just wanted to read that to you because I wow. thought it was such a beautiful personalization of how the law really affects people. And yeah, seriously. Uh, I mean, it's real, real, these are real people with real lives. And, you know, and I, I love the real respect for history and tradition and saying, okay, that's history and tradition, but that can be, that can evolve over time. Yeah. So just like how people who practice getting people's pronouns correct, it affects the, the other person whose pronouns you're trying to get correct every day. Every time I hear someone not try, it's like, I hear, I hear the, the wrong pronoun. So just like how that affects me every day, if, all these people, if they were in the hospital and their spouse was not recognized as their legal spouse because of the state, it's going to affect how they could do anything in the hospital or, or so many, so many silly examples where it's already hard enough to be going through tough decisions when you're in tough situations like hospitals or anywhere where legal oh. stuff is important. Absolutely. It affects pension rights. It affects people's retirement. It affects their livelihood. It affects their tax status. It affects um, visitation. Hospital visitation is a big one. 
uh, because a spouse can have a, a, the right to visit someone in the hospital, but someone who is uh, an, you know, a friend or acquaintance may not have that right um, unless they right. documented it in advance. And they're, you know, before this um, happened, there could be complicated kind of documentation you'd have to do if you wanted to have, give someone power of attorney, your, your effectively spouse. Um, I think a lot of the, the confusion and I, the, the difficulty for people who have, who have real trouble with this, I, what I believe is that they're partly, I think they're afraid of things they don't understand or people they don't know. Um, and I also think that, um, there, when you're talking about marriage, I think people are confusing their particular religious experience, um, which, you know, people are free to practice religion with a legal, legal experience, a legal rights. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that if you can, if people can understand that base, um, that basic thing that, that even people who might have a hard time understanding marriage equality could at least understand if two people love each other, shouldn't they be allowed to visit each other in the hospital? If two people have been mm -hmm. together, um, you know, they're for 20 or 30 years, shouldn't one person stand to inherit from the other? Um, and, yeah. and those kinds of things that, that I think they can maybe understand, but it's, it's difficult because some people just are, are really afraid of things they don't understand. A lot of people who don't want to go the extra mile for someone they don't understand, they're not trying to relate to them or be in their shoes or really think about how their their vote or anything that they do relates to other people. And I think it's really something that the whole world needs to work on continuously. Like I definitely do. When I was growing up, I was not the most um, self-aware or I had to learn how to be um, empathetic. And so we all have to work on understanding like where people are coming from and trying to see it in the other people's shoes who don't have like these legal rights for things or who haven't had them in the past. I, I, I fully agree with you. And I, I really believe that the more people can try to see things from other people's perspective, try to understand how someone else might experience the world. Uh, I, I really think that is the, what we need the, the most in our society is that willingness to, to, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes as the old saying goes, <laughs> you know, the basic ruling in Obergefell was that the 14th amendment protects fundamental liberties, um, regardless of who you're married to. So, uh, the right to marry is a fundamental liberty because it involves your individual autonomy. It protects this very um, intimate association between two people and the, the constitution protects your freedom of association. That's the first amendment. It safeguards children and families by giving legal recognition to a home and to families. Um, and those are all parts of what the constitution is designed to affect as keystone of social order. Um, and what Justice Kennedy said is there's no difference between a same-sex union and a, and a different sex union with all these principles. And so excluding same-sex people from marriage violates the due process clause, the, the right to due process under the law. And because you're treating different people differently, 
um, that denies them equal protection under the law. And so these same principles of liberty and equality apply in both cases. The court also held that the First Amendment protects the rights of religious organizations to have their own principles and to hear what they would like to do. But the legal right of marriage is a different right. So you're not impacting someone's freedom of religion. So when I married my spouse, Nicole, we were married in a Catholic church. We had all our family there. We had a priest. The priest gave a homily. He told us what we had to do. We said our vows. After that was all over, we went in a different room and we filled out paperwork, right? We had to fill out a marriage certificate, <laughs> get a marriage license and our, and our, um, my, my best man and, and her uh, maid of honor signed as witnesses that, that yes, we were married. That legal document's the one that matters for the government's purposes. Whatever right. happened in the church, that's the church, you know, that's, that's a yeah. separate thing. And, it, and that's what the Supreme Court says here is, is that, is that when you are talking about a legal right that we're protecting under the law, we're not impinging on your church's recognition. And if your church isn't going to, to do that, we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> so that's the case. I don't know if you remember, but after the decision was announced, the uh, White House projected a rainbow flag onto it. It's a beautiful image. Which decision? For Prop 8? For Obergefell, for this, this oh, decision. Oh, really? Yeah. And that was in 2015? Yeah. Wow. So that's Obergefell. Dang. It's crazy that these things all have, have really only happened within the last decade. Yeah. It, it is It is kind of amazing. And you know, I was just thinking about, um, I was thinking about this as I was, um, getting ready to, to have you on today. And I thought to myself, you know, I remember, cause I'm, I was born in 1974. I remember when, when AIDS, uh, the AIDS epidemic happened in, in, uh, the eighties. Um, I was a very different time and I, I know you're younger than I am. So you don't remember, but it was a, it was a big deal. Um, because rock Hudson, like nobody knew he was gay and he came out and he said, yeah, I'm, I have AIDS and that was, um, I think it, you know, that as people learn more about real people, I think it changes their opinions. And so a lot has changed about opinions. A lot has changed in the law. And in fact, the day we're releasing this May 17th is a recognition of the United Nations changing, uh, changing legal status of, um, people. And that happened in 1990. That's, that's not that long ago. No. So, so, um, so, you know, we've made significant progress in a short amount of time, but there's mm -hmm. a long way to go. Um, so yeah. the, uh, the other case I wanted to share with you, I think that might be, um, relevant to you. And, uh, really, I think this is, this is important to a lot of people who are uh, transgender, um, to know about these rights because um, uh, you're entitled to a discrimination-free workplace. You are entitled to a work workplace where you're treated the same as everyone else. Um, and that may or may not actually happen all the time, but, um, but you, th it's important to know this legal right. This case came out June 15th, 2020, so last year. Um, wow. And the case is Bostock versus Clayton County. The, the, the holding in Bostock is that discrimination against a transgender person 
is discrimination based on sex. And so we're talking about gender and sex. And so when the way the laws describes it is looking at the civil rights, um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 doesn't contain a reference to the word gender. It contains a reference to the word sex. And so the argument of the uh, for folks who opposed the um, transgender rights in the workplace said, well, the law doesn't say gender. So we're not discriminating based on sex. We're discrimination. We're discriminating based on gender, which yeah. is that we we're saying we have the right to refer to you by your birth gender, by yeah. your and not by your birth sex. Sorry. Yes. Uh, yeah. And um, and so what Gorsuch said is, no, that's wrong, actually, because. Uh, because gender and sex are different things. Mm. And so if you are, if you are um, denying someone's right to identify as a different gender, you are, you are discriminating based on sex because you are saying, I'm not going to refer to you as, as a woman, as female or as a woman, because, I, because your birth gender is male. And so you are, but you wouldn't say that to a person whose birth gender was female. Does that make sense? Right. Someone, who someone identifies as, a, as female. Someone who's born as a woman and who identifies as a woman, you refer to that person as a woman is what he's right. saying. Someone who's born uh, as a man, but identifies as a woman. If you say, I'm not going to call you, I'm not going to treat you as a woman. Mm -hmm. You are discriminating based on that person's sex, their mm -hmm. physical, biological sex. Hmm. So, so this is where the law is kind of departing from what we're talking about as a, as a more modern understanding of gender and sex. Mm -hmm. And so Gorsuch is really actually, do, you know, doing the LGBTQ plus community. Um, he's helping by taking this law, which is old. 1964 and bring you know and applying it to the current to to a more current understanding of what's going on uh, cool. broader, broader current understanding so in this case gerald bostock who's a gay man began working for clayton county georgia as a child welfare services coordinator in 2003 and so during his 10-year career he had positive performance evaluations numerous accolades in 2013 Bostock began participating in a gay recreational softball league. He started getting criticism for participating in the gay softball league. Um, he was uh, criticized for his sexual orientation, his identity. And during a meeting in which his supervisor was present, one person made openly disparaging remarks about his participation in the gay softball league. And then they said they were going to be conducting an internal audit and they terminated him for, quote, conduct unbecoming of its employees. Um, within a few months of his termination, he filed a charge of discrimination with the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, and then he filed a lawsuit against the county alleging discrimination based on sexual orientation based on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and his case was dismissed because they uh, reasoned that the law did not pr protect sexual orientation, sexual preference. Um, it protected sex. Mm. Um, and so the question was, does the Civil Rights Act prohibit employment discrimination because of sex? Does that include sexual orientation? Um, so 
the holding in the case, this is um, by Gorsuch, um, is joined by Kagan, Sotomayor, Breyer, Ginsburg, and Roberts, says that when an employer fires an employee just for being gay or transgender, that violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination against any individual because of the race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. The court says that when an employer intentionally fires an employee based in part on sex, that's discrimination. And so discrimination on the basis of homosexuality or transgender status means that the employer is intentionally treating that employee different because of their sex. So that is, that is discrimination and that is illegal. I'm not even going to bother with what the dissenting opinion said in this case, because it's mm -mm. just a waste of our time. But the point is that this, this law, this, this interpretation of the law from last year means that if you um, or anyone listening to this podcast or anyone you know is experiencing active discrimination at work based upon a transgender status, homosexuality, sexual preference, um, any kind of uh, membership in LGBTQ plus community, or even the implication, um, that is workplace discrimination. That is protected by the law. And you have the right to a discrimination-free workplace. You have the right to be treated as you choose, to gender identify as you choose, and to be who you are in the workplace. It is against mm -hmm. the law. So that is my soapbox. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have questions about that? No, I'm just thinking about different scenarios when um, I noticed that they did have to, like different workplaces I worked for, they did have to work work a bit extra hard to gender me correctly or something. Like I, the first job I, w I ever worked that wasn't family owned um, was Target. And I was trying out um, he, him pronouns at the time when I was trying to figure out which gender I most related to. And they tried really hard. <laughs> to gender me correctly. So oh, it's that's good. Yeah, well, yeah. that's good. I think they were, pro they were, um, if it was before 2020, then they were maybe a little bit ahead of the curve. It N was. Now we can, now we can actually force them to do it. Yeah. So <laughs> it's interesting to think that they weren't legally think thinking about the legal ramifications if they didn't, because this was 2018 or a little bit before. So that's cool. San Francisco, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, well, they, they may have been thinking about legal ramifications. I, um, I'm not sure that I think California law prohibited uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity before nice. before this decision. Uh, but this this now makes it a national standard. Wow. Yeah. So what I want to do from here is I want to jump into the interview of you and ask you a few questions sure. and put that in. you use more of an of neutral language when you describe your spouse that's right right so i i as a non-binary person i use they them pronouns and i always notice how language is gendered and so when i noticed how in different like descriptions of yourself you describe yourself as a human as a spouse i was like oh wow that's a gender neutral phrase and they seem to be very heteronormative but they're using gender neutral language and they're they you and your wife seem to be 
educating yourself as things change. I was really comforted to see all these things because I never know how people who I meet in class, what they really believe and if they're just being nice to me, but they could have internalized, I don't know, transphobia, uh, what's the other one? Homophobia. I always forget about the homophobia phrase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, I think it's such an interesting time, Em, um, because, I, you know, I think our culture is in the middle of a big shift. Um, and um, I certainly have learned a lot. I learned enough to know that there's a lot more I have to learn. So a year ago, I wasn't even really aware of, you know, pronouns affecting people. Yeah. And had someone told me 10 years ago, I would have made a change because I, mm -hmm. I just didn't know. I didn't think of it. It wasn't something that was within my sphere, which mm -hmm. is not an excuse, but it's, uh, it's relatable though. It's, it's, but it's not an excuse. It's just that I didn't, I didn't have the experience mm -hmm. to, and, or the awareness or the sensitivity to realize like things that I do without knowing or automatically could be hurting people without me being aware of it. And even though I'm not intending to hurt anyone, it's still having that effect. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm not someone who wants to hurt people. I want to, and I believe most people don't want to hurt people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that we get a lot in this in these days in the media of people barking about things mm -hmm. and I think those loud voices don't represent what, where most people are at. So, so, totally. um, so I appreciate that that meant something to you and I'm glad that it did. Um, and I noticed, so transgender day of visibility just came around again, but I remember last year when I posted about it, you actually liked it and said nice words. Oh yeah. I'm glad that I did. I bet you don't remember, but no, this is I, something I remember. Yeah. No, I, I, I do remember, um, I do remember saying something about that because at, at that point in time, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of your, um, uh, identity. I have your identity. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, you know, at second city, it's not something that. <sighs> they don't really ask, but lately places like clown classes and different classes they've been putting their pronouns next to their name or like mm -hmm. going around in the circle and saying them ahead of time so people aren't assuming things but i yeah. i actually didn't didn't um tell people all the time because i i don't know i wasn't um campaigning for myself at the time or whatever the right word is so do you want to, um, can you tell me a little bit about your journey? Sure. Um, do you want to ask a question? Like what specific? So, okay. So just saying I wasn't campaigning for myself. Um, what I wasn't like, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is promoting. Um, you know, when you're like supporting yourself against other people, uplifting let's see what's the right word well i wasn't i wanted to keep everyone just comfortable and not just um you know how some people feel like oh this person's like 
pushing their gender identity down my throat or all these I don't want to feel like a burden and so now I do say my pronouns ahead of time but like even at work I didn't um, broadcast it and just continually correct people because I didn't want to burden anyone with it uh-huh you know so now that the communities are the communities and society are becoming more like nice about the learning process and like learning pronouns i feel more comfortable to be like oh yeah these are my pronouns this is my gender identity you know because mm -hmm. people are actually talking about it in positive ways now just like how you guys are using spouse yeah well it's, yeah exactly and it is it's so new for me um, but I'm sure it's it's not new for you, mm -hmm. and um, and I think it's interesting you were use the word comfort, feeling comfortable, because mm -hmm. um, I've been thinking about that, and you know as a you know apparently you know I guess the the, the word is cisgendered I believe yes it uh, is head, you know heterosexual white male yeah. you know Christian professional yeah. with slightly gray hair and a professional title. Um, I, I walk into a room and my discomfort shouldn't be like it, like if you're accommodating my comfort level, then there's something not right because right. I don't, I don't need to be my comfort level to be accommodated. Right. You know what I mean? It's like doing violence on other people basically. Right. And, and, and so, um, you know, where, where I'm at is trying to recognize that I have a role to play mm -hmm. and that my role is that I can model behavior mm -hmm. that is, might make other people who look like me realize that not everybody does. Yeah. And, and that, some people who look like you could be non-binary as well. Correct. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's totally mm -hmm. true. And, and, and that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Um, so I only wish I could do more. Yeah. Well, talking about it and being open to constructive advice is, is awesome. Like I've noticed how some people when they're corrected or they know that they said the wrong pronoun, this is something to avoid. They profusely apologize and they make it about themselves. Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Give me patience. Oh my God. And I'm like, it's okay. Don't think that it's, we all have learning processes. Like it takes me a long time to correctly gender someone as well, even though I use they, them pronouns, but making it about some, like making about yourself is a problem and um, making the queer or gender non-conforming or gay person or whoever or minority person of color to comfort you is not ideal for anyone you know yeah, so just yeah. being open to like oh yes they them yes you're right thank you just saying thank you and like continuing your sentence you know like oh m wrong pronoun blah 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 sentence and then i'm like oh they and there and then you repeat this the sentence with the correct pronoun and it's just a practice skill you know and oh, when in huge. doubt use their name yeah um that is that is a good piece of advice yeah when in doubt use a person's first name 
Yeah, like, oh, <laughs> M loves ice cream. They love ice cream. Don't steal their ice cream. I can never think of the, the of the them one. You must kill them to steal their ice cream. <laughs> I don't know. It's always snack related. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. No, that's that's actually useful advice, and I appreciate that um, reminder about um, there is a tendency. There can be a tendency to feel to feel embarrassed. It's mm -hmm. embarrassment. It's like, oh fuck, I yeah. screwed up. I did something that was like offensive and like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be offensive. And it's like, right. okay, well, you know, yeah. by being so upset about it, it's making you're making more of a thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you asked me like what my story was. Um, uh -huh. Well, growing up, I never really felt comfortable being super feminine or being, or having stereotypes projected onto me. Like, girls do this, boys do this, you know, you have to have long hair. You have to look a certain way. These are the stereotypes you must conform to. And pink felt like the enemy. And I was the youngest of four. And my my older sibling is my brother. And so they didn't know they're having more girls quote unquote, after him. So everyone got pink clothing for when I was born. Lots of pink. So I became Pinky. That was my nickname. And I was only in pink for so long. Oh. And so, so much was projected onto me. And I had a very hyper feminine first name, like M is short for a hyper feminine first name. And so there's just so much that goes along with your name. Like Billy mm -hmm. is short for William, right? Uh huh. Yeah. But Billy really fits your personality, like you're fun and spontaneous and exciting. And William sounds more like, oh, hello, I'm William. <laughs> Respect me. <laughs> I am hyper-masculine. <laughs> Give me the, the canoe. I will, I will row us to safety. <laughs> Usually I use William when I want money from somebody. Yes, I understand. <laughs> Getting grants or something? Yeah. Or, oh, <laughs> hello, I am William. <laughs> when I want to make a reservation at a restaurant. Oh, that's pretty good. When I when I order food, they're like, okay, what name is it under? And I'm like, M. And they're like, Ann? M. E-M. Okay, M-E-M. -E <laughs> I'll put you down. I'm like, oh, gosh. Why? Oh, no. No. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, okay, so. Okay, so you had an, an insufferable nickname, a uh, uh, a first name that didn't fit you, mm -hmm. and a wardrobe that was repulsive. And uh, I've had chest surgery, so I'm very mm -hmm. flat, and I was flat when I met you. But growing up, I have a family line that has very large boobs, and so my I'm four foot ten. You remember how short I am, and I had size thirty four F boobs on my tiny little frame. And people assume so much when that is on you. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. So there's just so much assumptions and projections on the people. Like anyone, you said that before people would accuse you or assume that you're gay. Mm -hmm. And I think that might happen because people have these stereotypes of what masculinity looks like. And if you're not 
um, hiding or masking your feelings and your enthusiasm and just like your like happy smiley self, then you're not masculine and you must be something else when you don't have to be anything specific or use specific labels or any of this to be just a person, a human, like you like to be called mm -hmm. <laughs> in your profile. Um, so I don't know, people just want stereotypes in the United States and that's what they want to see. And if they, if they don't see it, they'll shun you or be mean to you or me. Mm -hmm. They've mm -hmm. been mean to me. I know. You know, I'm sure I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I did hear, I, um, Nicole shared with me, and then also I listened to the podcast just about some of the bullying that you experienced. And I, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that is just horrible. Thanks. Yeah, bullying is not cool. And uh, I was going to school when cyberbullying was new. Oh. And so my school didn't want to deal with it, and the police didn't want to deal with it as a serious thing. So nothing was really uh, worked out. And my teacher, who was uh, the master of the bullies, in high school, she still works there. And I actually wow. live just down the street from the, the high school. So it's kind of like triggering when they have their like marching band music playing and I can hear oh it. Oh my God. Yeah, hear it at my house. And she drives past my house to get home. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, life's hard. And that's all before gender happens and gender identity happens. Bullying. So when did you when did you kind of um, start becoming aware that your that your birth sex wasn't matching your gender? Like, mm. was that something you knew immediately, or was that something that kind of developed over time? What what was that like for you? Well, I never felt comfortable about like the boob thing or like stereotypes. And in high school, I tried cutting my hair, and then I got it fixed the next morning. You know, so it looked like this, but even shorter. And that was in high school and my town, Simi Valley, was not very kind to me. Mm -hmm. Like people weren't nice to me anymore when you're when you're a little kid and you're like a cute little kid and usually people are nice to you for just that reason. But then people stopped being nice to me. So I realized, okay, I'm going to grow my hair back and blend in. And once I went to college, San Francisco State University, um, I got to experiment with how I presented myself again. So I cut my mm -hmm. hair again and I got a gender therapist, which uh -huh. helped me get top surgery or at least get on the list for top surgery. And college was kind of very like depressing and kind of sad in like just figuring out my gender identity and working through depression and all those things, as well as trying to get good grades. So that yeah. was hard. Oh, I know. Gosh. Yeah. Um, wow. That sounds intense. So, so, um, so was that something like, did that start as soon as you were kind of out of Simi Valley and, and at San Francisco state or, well, um, I actually, I've had two chest surgeries, so I've had a breast reduction first. And that's when I first started to feel more like myself once I no longer had as much weight on my chest. So uh -huh. I could start wearing clothing that was more comfortable uh -huh. and explore. Uh -huh. So just getting some distance from the town and, and 
discovering who I wanted to be and being so depressed that I can't live like this anymore. So I have to change. And then I have to tell my parents and see if they'll still um, support me. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's all a struggle. And that's why it's important to have people like lawyers and people who help defend different um, amendments or cases. And we could even talk about some of those cases. Like I remember when Proposition sure. 8 happened and I was in middle school and I remember seeing signs for yes or no on people's like people's lawns. And I was thinking, wait a second, these people are voting this way, but they do have a gay son. So which one is the correct one? It, it's so confusing how they la- they word like propositions. And I think that one was especially confusing. Yeah, it was. It was intentionally confusing. Yeah. Um, and, and many propositions are intentionally confusing. Yeah. Um, so. Um, and then another case you brought up mm-hmm. was Ober Joel Fell. Obergefell, right? yeah, yeah, Obergefell. versus Hodges. Is that the one from 2015? Yeah. So, right. um, yeah. So the, um, um, so the marriage equality movement um, has occurred since in the period of time since I became a lawyer. Um, so I, it was. Um, I remember in law school in 2003. Um, my constitutional law professor talked about um, marriage equality as an issue that was potentially coming up. So um, yeah, so one of the things you know in our in our exchanges before the show is I was like, are there legal issues you're interested in? And you said, yeah, what about marriage? And so good news, the law today is it is that in the United States of America, any adult can marry any other adult. Yay. Um, which- I like that it's so. It's less specific about man being men marrying men, men wearing what that men marrying women, women marrying women. Because I don't identify either way, right? And so it's like, do I have any rights that these people have gotten beforehand before they start using gender neutral terms or labels? I think what it really comes down to. Um, is that it's really about love. And, you know, if you, if you ask someone, do you love other human beings? Mm -hmm. The answer is almost universally. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you want to, do you want to live in a society that is loving and inclusive to other human beings? The answer is universally. Yes. We all believe that people believe that I, I think almost everybody. Of course, there's going to be people who are ill, but almost everybody believes that. And so if we start from that common ground, that common ground of love, I feel like people can learn and I hope that people learn. And so what I see now, I see the stress and um, my heart goes out to transgender persons to be so focused on marginalized and really uh, being used as a um, as a political, a political, a political tool to wedge, to try and wedge people and drive people apart. Yes. Um, or to promote people's support. Like I remember last year when Trump had the, the transgender ban on the military, transgender people ban. Mm-hmm. 
And that the day that that happened was a really bad day for me. I was just thinking, wow, the, the United States is against people like me. And this is just a reflection of more horrible laws to come. And it, it actually affects people that are transgender, that are already in the military, that are already serving, or that want to apply. I've heard people were turned away when they were applying around that time because the recruiter was like, maybe wait till later because right now you don't wanna to get totally banned from joining the military in general because of this that's happening right now. Wow. Yeah. So it all of these things do affect people thoroughly. So it's awesome that we could even talk about all of these different propositions or um, lawsuits that happen or unconstitutional things or whatever. Well, yeah. I mean, I think too, you have different shifts. You have the law and you have culture. Sometimes mm -hmm. the law is ahead of culture and sometimes it's behind. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the case of marriage equality, I think the law was a little bit ahead of the culture. Um, and um, I think that the law impacted the culture in that, in that instance. I think yeah. recognizing or maybe mainstream culture because the queer yeah. people have always been like this is what we need this is what we want oh my gosh finally and then mainstream culture has to come come up and for people who may not hear about queer issues before can hear about it now yeah and actually that's a great correction i really appreciate that um i think the word using the word culture to describe mainstream culture is is not inclusive because there mm -hmm. are many cultures within our yeah. nation and i think that's a really great point yeah um and i even think the word mainstream might be that might not be the right word um, i think about mainstream culture as the one that holly hollywood is projecting that this is what society is to the world and to the united states well, you know, it's so interesting that you talk about Hollywood because I think these, these different things that are related here where, um, you know, with the with social media and with everyone having a basically a movie studio in their pocket at all times, mm -hmm. um, the ability to create short form comedy, drama, um, podcasts, you know, documentaries. TikTok. Yeah. TikTok is short form documentary. My gosh. <laughs> 15 and, and, to 60 seconds my god <laughs> yeah and you know you you have a degree in film studies and mm -hmm. and cinema and you know you think about i mean i made a film in 1997 mm -hmm. okay as my senior thesis and i sat in a basement with videotape giant vhs tapes you know and matching them up to make one cut it would take me like for every single edit would take me like 10 minutes to do one edit um and I had notebooks of all the things that I was, it was, and the, and the, the, I think about like, wow, you know, people are walking around with movie studios today. And what that's done is it has broken up the monopoly on a cultural dialogue. And part of what we're seeing is the people who don't want that to happen. You know, people who um, may have benefited from a um white male patriarchal society yes you know 
where they're controlling what's being put out there, who's being hired, and all these monopolies that they've been using to control what people are consuming. Mm -hmm. Well, and also the consumers who are used to seeing themselves on screen, and then all of a sudden they're seeing people who don't look like them on screen and wondering, am I still important? Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, the, this, there's a um, book I really want to read called, um, oh crap, it's by um, Ijeoma Oluo called Mediocre. Um, it's, about, um, it's about the sort of toxic impact of, of white male mediocrity. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and this, this idea that just because of your identity, you're entitled to um, be a dominant force in society. And some people are threatened by that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm in, in ways that I can't really say on a podcast. Um, I am experiencing it every day in the sense that I don't want to be, um, I want to be part of a society where um, M Persico is every bit as human as Billy D. Clerk. Yeah, and, and represented just, in the media as such, and not just as a stereotype. And and I don't want laws to make I don't want laws to be enacted that make you feel excluded. Right, and even just representation in the media is so big for everyone who doesn't just look like you. You know, like in college when I was deciding to tra- transition to the extent of making me comfortable. Like I've had chest surgery and I cut my hair and I started to present more masculine to see how masculine or feminine or neither I would prefer to feel like and not think that this is how I have to look. Now I'm allowing myself to for some freedom. Well, during college when I was deciding whether or not I should get rid of the the boobs and things. I was thinking, man, I'll never be able to act if if I do this, like be an actor, because there's no one in the media that looks like me. And I won't be able to play the female roles because I don't have boobs. And I won't be able to play the male roles because I'm not taking hormones. And I'm not taller than five feet. I'm four foot 10. And so this was something I was struggling with while I was trying to get comfortable in my body in college in a cinema major. Right. I even have a story like I was taking a lot of writing classes, screenwriting courses, world building courses, and I have been writing this fantasy world where the the main character is non-binary, like me. It could be played by anyone, but hopefully a non-binary actor or transgender actor. And so one of the comments that my professor said in class was, there needs to be a story reason why the main character is non-binary, which made me kind of sad to think, so there needs to be a story reason why I exist in a film or fantasy film or any story ever. And a story reason for a non-cinema major would be 
what? No, not like, a non-binary you... person. No, no, so, I know. But what like, do you mean? I mean, can you define what a story reason would be? Like, oh, they're going to show diversity in the movie by connecting two sides of a society by being non-binary. Just like, just think about it like, oh, there has to be a story reason why the main character is a woman other than a white heteronormative man. Oh, she is uniting the um, feminists with the um, rebel group because this is what's related to being a woman. So the story, so so when someone says a story reason, like like the 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 character, like there has to be a story reason that something happens in a in a in a film, right? Like like a re like an explanation, and and you basically um, reaction to that is like, how about just they're a person? Yeah, why can't? me a non-binary person exist in a story without my gender being a part of the storyline right right so like i tell this this concept to queer people and they usually get it pretty like oh that's so lame and then i tell it to screenwriters and they're like oh yeah okay i get it and so it there's always different responses to this concept well, for me, it's like a non-cinema person. It's like, uh, you know. <laughs> what does the story reason mean? What, what's the story reason? Yeah, but I yeah. mean, I, I kind of knew, but I wanted to make sure I understood that. Right. I want to build a world for my, for my character where their gender or, non, or gender non-conforming like identity and projection of themselves in society doesn't have to be what our society is doing and how they treat people you know mm -hmm. I, it can have female leaders that are in power and it doesn't have to be oh this is how she got to the top because of all the oppression of these certain people like i want to build a completely different world where it does seem more like less patriarchal and not mm -hmm. like oppressing certain groups or underrepresenting people or being mean to people just because they're different. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want that to be a thing. And mm -hmm. perhaps that erases identities and erases struggles, but I also want to show a world where you don't have to oppress people or bully them for their gender identity. And I also want to be able to play this role as myself, looking like I look without boobs and have scars on my chest and actually be in fantasy films and get to a sword fight or whatever. Yeah. I just want to exist, you know? Yeah. And that's what represent representation in the media means to me. Uh huh. And that's why I try to consume more things that have that like Sabrina, the, the adventures of Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, they had a new Netflix version of that story. Uh -huh. And one of the characters in it is a transgender person. And it's played by a non-binary actor. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, I, don't know, yeah. I don't know if you know this, but they're the pink, blue, white, pink, blue. I don't know the order, but that's the colors in the transgender flag. And the white one... Yeah 
is non-binary. Oh. So we are part of the umbrella. So the oh. actor is a non-binary actor. Oh, mm -hmm. that's and cool. That's the first time I ever saw someone who looked like me uh -huh. on the screen. And that was only a few years ago. That's well, I'm glad for that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's just it's um, yeah. So it's just like being aware of what we're consuming in the media or like what content we're creating. And so in your podcast, I'm looking at the description of it and it says after you do the original scenes, Billy throws off his gloves and goes for the jugular by asking heavyweight questions to find out what makes his guests tick. Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is that? What does uh, that, that entail? Um, well, what I usually do um, is, you know, the conversation that we've been having is yeah. usually kind of at the end. And I'll ask questions like, um, like, like medium difficult questions. Like if there was a childhood moment that you could go back to and reenact, what would it be and why? Damn. You want me to try to answer it? Yeah, why not? Okay. This one time, the very only time I ever was put on timeout was because I locked my friend Lindsay out of the house and I put caution tape all over the doors <laughs> and she cried. <laughs> she cried about it. And then I got put on timeout in this very room in this corner. And maybe I would not have done that. Or maybe if I reenacted it, I don't know. How do you make people know it's a joke? <laughs> I think I this know. is the last time I tried doing a joke on someone. <laughs> well, I mean, did she stay your friend? Yeah. Okay. Till after well, I guess... elementary school. Till till elementary school. And then I went to middle school without her. And then she came the next year. So I guess not. Mm. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, um, let's see. Maybe if you had jumped out through the caution tape and yelled surprise, then she would have like known that the joke. Maybe if I didn't lock the door. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my neuroscientist spouse is very clear on one thing, which is that social isolation uh, activates the pain centers in the brain. And Ooh. so you actually experience social isolation and exclusion as physical pain. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I have learned from her. I can definitely relate to that feeling because during college, I spent a lot of time by myself. And after college, I was home and I was still very depressed. And so the only things I would do was go to work and come home. And so the only people I ever talked to were Starbucks baristas and waitresses my parents and a few people at work. So I was basically in isolation or quarantine before quarantine was a thing in 2018. So I can, oh, wow. I can relate to it being physically painful. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's terrible. I'm smiling about it now just because I don't know. I'm at a, such a different place now being able to talk to my friends on zoom about podcast stuff and meeting them in person at in, in, musical improv classes and meeting their spouse over zoom and talking about her wonderful book. So it's nice not to be in pain anymore. Yeah. So, um, tell me about your clowning. Um, oh. like what, 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 how did you get started? 
what it, do you have a um a style as a clown mm. i think i'm still learning my style as a clown because i'm still learning my myself i'm still mm -hmm. discovering myself and becoming more comfortable as a performer and as a person with social anxiety i'm getting more comfortable in the room as a performer but also as a person Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you could tell in our class, but I might have been awkward, fidgety, nervous seeming at times, but maybe not because I had taken a few classes up until then, which helped me become more comfortable around people. But what were we talking about? <laughs> Your clown persona. Clown persona. Oh, yeah. So... At times, you know, being a non-binary person, I tend to wear cool clothing, like earrings, uh, dark clothing, ripped jeans, etc. So there's a real like cool, cool kid persona that non-binary people or queer people try to to show. Like not right now because I'm wearing tie dye, but sometimes I try to look cool, and um, so. A style that I tend to go into for clowning is a more whimsical person who is more childlike and not trying to be cool, not trying to avoid embarrassment, just like going with it. And clowning is that in general. Clowning is, for me, doing anything that scares me or makes me feel embarrassed. So if I am embarrassed by my butt, maybe I'll do a butt dance and then it's no longer an embarrassing feeling for me. And so I move out of, out of my comfort zone and making it bigger. That's a term I just learned, making my comfort zone bigger. Mm -hmm. Avner the eccentric just taught me that in class recently. What, what was the name again? Avner the eccentric. Oh, he's a red nosed clown and he's amazing. Also What's known Avner Eisenberg. Oh, mm -hmm. you should look him up. Okay. I'm in one of his classes and I'm going to take his class again in a few months when it starts up again. Oh, cool. Yeah. So clowning is all about breaking the, the fourth wall, making eye contact with the audience, trying so hard to be successful at something and then failing at it and sharing it with the audience. Uh huh. So that's what clowning is to me. So I like just being that. a more whimsical, free person. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've been really trying to do with my gender identity, with my life, with performances and clowning. So become more free and comfortable and be able to jump on stage more eventually with musical improv or whatever I'm doing. You know, mm -hmm. it's tough. Yeah. It's tough to be a person. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But I think it's amazing that you're doing a podcast. And, um, uh, you know, I was really honored that you reached out to me. Um, you were think, one of the first people I reached out to, actually. Well, I was like, wow, she's like planned podcasts three months in advance. I'm now planned uh, seven months in advance. I mean, you're a pro. Yay. That's that's seriously amazing. I was like, wow, you, I was like, 
you're like, would you like to be on? I'm like, sure. You're like, how's April? I'm like, that's like a hundred years from now. Like, I'm like, usually like I was writing my outline 10 minutes before we got on. So, yeah. um, so I admire the organization. Yay. Um, you should see my calendar. Oh, <laughs> I know. Cool. Uh-huh. Very cool. It's, it's crazy. And I start my calendar with on Monday because I like to group my Saturday, my Friday, Saturday, and Sundays together because clown classes, you got to group your classes together. Oh, I don't know. I, it works for me. Oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. So what projects are you working on? Oh, um, can I, before I answer that, can I say sure. something about social anxiety? Yes. Um, Okay. So, so, um, when we met in the, in the musical improv class, I could tell you were really cool. And I could tell that the improv made you nervous. And I would say as a person who tends to be more boisterous, um, and also someone who doesn't want to be a jerk. Um, I would say to, to you, if, there was, had been an opportunity at the time to have a conversation. I would say, be you, we're glad you're here. Yay. And just, and just like, I think understanding, like if you're feeling that anxiety, we all feel it to some extent or another. And just to know and believe that uh, for the most part, 99.9999999% of people, um, want you to be there and want to know you and want to experience what you have to share. And they and want you to be successful. They want right. you to do well because they feel better when you, when the person does well. Yeah. And I think we can do a better job in improv classes. Um, it, musical improv is interesting because it kind of, um, you know, because it was an all comers kind of class. And with the conservatory, you're with a group and you kind of grow together. Right. Um, so I had already taken like a bunch of improv classes in a That's row. That's very that helpful. Point. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Before I do musical improv again. It's definitely well because musical. So musical improv is neat because it's a, it's a, it is a magic trick. Because as improv goes, it's not as complicated as doing like a straight organic scene for an hour mm. or whatever. But it's but it's also got its own thing going on. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also really, and it's also really fun. Yeah. But, um, anyway, to, from, you know, rolling back the clock anyway, I'd say, you know, I would have said, had there been a moment, I would have said, I'm really glad you're here, Em, and I'm glad mm -hmm. to meet you. And I'm Yay. glad you're part of this class. And if I steamroll you, just tell me to sit down. It's your turn. Ah, that's crazy. <laughs> Actually, you know, at the beginning of those type of classes, they gathered us all in a room and then we did like a warm-up exercise before everyone split off do you remember the first uh, day yeah sort of cloudy yeah yeah well i actually noticed you before we all got split off into the appropriate rooms and i was thinking well this person is very enthusiastic has lots of buddies to be chatting with and i was like oh that's someone i would like to like emulate to be so charismatic and comfortable you know, you're great just the way you are. But I think I have worked on that and now I can be just as charismatic as you and more comfortable with new groups of people. And maybe I've just collected everyone and be like, hey, we're buddies now, mm -hmm. you know, so just more comfortable in a room. 
The other thing too, is I think it helps um, doing improv, the better you know your, your other performers, because you know their, um, you know their tricks and their go-tos mm-hmm. and you kind of know their style and you can read each other better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so have make- no perception. I have, I never guess well, but I think I'm not grounded enough and present in the room to get on the same page as some people. So I think that would help me a lot. Well, I think, yeah. Well, I think maybe it's just, you know, getting in there and doing it and learning. And I think the other thing is, is I love um, the idea of just getting comfortable with failure Mm -hmm. and that the failure is the fun part. Yeah. Like, Like if you're doing an improv scene that, you know, just falls apart. It doesn't really matter. Right. You know, what? it reminds me of my favorite quote. I actually I have the magnet in this very room on the air vent in my room. And it's been there since I bought it uh, like a decade ago. And it's failure is going from no, no, success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> Winston Churchill. I like it. Yeah. And that's exactly what clowning is. And it's something that I've been grasping on onto it, even though sometimes I feel like, oh, man, I'm so bad at this. I've lost my enthusiasm. But eventually I get it back and I keep going to each thing and trying so hard, you know, and so I guess it's not really failure. I'm just successfully going to each thing and like trying really hard and being successful or whatever. I don't know. I mean, look, who's the hero of the Peanuts cartoons? The yellow bird or the dog? No, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. And he's the one who always like messes up. Like he tries to kick the ball and he misses and he lands on his back. Right. Lucy always pulls the football away and Charlie Brown always tries to kick it. Oh, it's so sad. It is so sad, but it's, we root for him. We love Charlie Brown because we're all like that. We all know what it feels like. Nobody roots for Lucy. Oh, it's true. Sad. But even but even Lucy has her moments too. But I think yeah. there's but I think that that point about like we we love we love the person who is trying because we all know what that feels like. Yeah. So. So the last question I ask. Are you ready? Uh-huh. What is your favorite dessert? <laughs> <laughs> I should have prepared for this because I knew it was coming. Oh no, I'm glad you didn't. But I no, I did actually. Oh, now no. I remember because I because I listened and I, I was surprised to hear my spouse say ice cream, peppermint, yes. and bubblegum. Uh she was in a weird very, ones. <laughs> it's a very pink, it's a very pink mood. But I will I will attest to that. Although she didn't mention honey. Is peppermint honey- pink? Peppermint, uh, typical often like a candy cane. Yeah, a lot of times peppermint ice cream. Oh my goodness, I did not realize this until now. (laughs) Yeah, and so I was like, I was like planning out my answer. I was like, I'll say chocolate and more chocolate and a chocolate thing and a chocolate chocolate. Oh no, I I like chocolate. Me too. Yeah, chocolate cake or a specific type of chocolate bar or milk chocolate, dark chocolate. Chocolate covered uh, cocoa beans, coffee beans. Those all sound great. So any chocolate. Any chocolate. My gosh, chocolate ice cream. 
chocolate ice cream. I like to get chocolate ice cream with chocolate fudge on top. And then yes. sometimes what I really like is putting rainbow sprinkles on things. Me too. The crunch. The crunch. And also it's Texture. just like you look at it and you're like, how can you not be happy looking at rainbow It's sprinkles? so happy and joyful. I agree. I also do that. I heat up a brownie or a cookie. I put some ice cream on it. I put rainbow sprinkles on it and it's like go time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The rainbow sprinkles are where it's at. Oh my gosh. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Mm, I also get, when I go to Baskin Robbins, I go towards the Sunday concept, but I do get the dark chocolate ice cream with hot fudge and whipped cream. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it almost tastes good. like dirt, but almost, but not, not exactly. So it's like, yes, yeah, perfect on the money. Not too much dirt flavor. <laughs> I want to thank my guest M Persico. Listen to M's show Artist with M everywhere you get your podcasts. Follow M on Instagram at M Persico. And finally, a public service announcement. If you or someone you know uh, is experiencing stress or trauma, relating to LGBTQ plus issues, I want to direct you to check out The Trevor Project. That's www.thetrevorproject.org. Telephone number 1-866-488-7386. Young people who are LGBTQ plus uh, contemplate suicide at almost three times the rate of heterosexual youth. They are almost five times as likely to have attempted suicide compared to heterosexual youth. And of suicide attempts made by youth, LGBTQ plus youth suicide attempts were almost five times as likely to require medical treatment than those of heterosexual youth. They're four to six more times likely to result in injury due to poisoning or overdose that requires treatment from doctor or nurse as compared to straight peers. And 40% of transgender adults report having made a suicide attempt. 92% of those individuals report having attempted suicide before the age of 25. LGBTQ plus youth who come from highly rejecting families are 8.4 times as likely to have attempted suicide as LGBTQ plus peers who've reported low or no levels of family rejection. Each episode of LGBTQ victimization, such as physical, verbal harassment, or abuse, increases the likelihood of self-harming behavior by 2.5 times on average. This is a health emergency. If you or someone you know is suffering from bullying or abuse relating to their gender identity or sexual orientation, please go to thetrevorproject.org, 1-866-488-7386, 1-866-488-7386, Four eight eight seven three eight six. You're not alone. There is help. You're not alone. Laying Down the Law is a product of Beyond Unreasonable Doubt, produced by Jeffrey Feitner and Verboten Productions. Our music is Galactic Damages by Jingle Punk. Our cover art is courtesy of The Mighty Q. I want to thank all of our listeners, and if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend, subscribe, share, write a review, leave us a rating. It helps us reach more ears. The single best way, though, is to recommend this podcast to someone else. If you're not enjoying the show, I'm not sure why you're listening, but okay. And please always feel free to tweet at me, at Max Hedrum ESQ, with any questions, comments, or suggestions. I'm your host, 
Billy D. Clerk, a.k.a. Max Hedrum Esquire, and I am a warrior without a weapon.